0: We're here with Bruce Schneier. Bruce is one of the top security technologists in the world, and he's a household name in the fields of cybersecurity and cryptography. He's a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, a board member at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the Tor Project, to just name a few. He's written more than a dozen books on cybersecurity and cryptography. And his latest book is Click Here to Kill Everybody. And no, this link will not appear in the show notes. Today we'll be talking about securing autonomous vehicles, considerations for vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-everything security, securing the Internet of Everything, or Internet Plus as Bruce calls it, and his new book. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap. Managing partner of Catalyst Go taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Bruce, welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy. It's really good to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to start today, Bruce, talking about browsers, you know, which are these things that are effectively our windows to the internet and everything connected to it, the internet of everything and the internet plus. And it seems that since really the early days, you know, the times of Mosaic and Netscape, we had this browser war going on, which really was focusing on the technical superiority of one browser over the other. But now it seems when we're talking about Browsers, we're talking about the ethical superiority of one browser over another. Where are we when it comes to privacy and security and browsers? And what's the future looking like, Bruce?
1: Right, it's interesting. Browsers are the window through which most of us access pretty much all of the Internet. Right. We get our email through browsers. We look at news and social networks through browsers. Even when we're on apps on our phone, there are browsers hidden in those apps usually. So the protocols are these HTTP protocols that are the web, which is not the same as the internet, but for a lot of people is basically the internet. And right, if you remember, browser wars uh, of old were based less on, I think, which browser were superior and more which company people liked better. Right? Did you use the Microsoft browser or did you use somebody else's browser? And, and today it's largely the same. Are you using Microsoft's browser, Apple's browser, Google's browser? And of course, if you use their browser, you buy into their business model. I mean, l- Google was the dominant browser. I don't know about market share, but I think certainly in mind share for for many years. And recently, they are starting to do more surveillance with their browser and disabling or at least uh, enabling less add-ons that block, advertising and cookies and other privacy things. I uh, used Opera for many years, a third-party browser. I use Firefox today. And to me, those are the best privacy-preserving browsers because they're not being run by a company with another agenda.
0: Yeah, and, and do you think most people understand that, that that's the trade-off they're making when they choose Chrome versus Firefox versus Safari? Yeah, I
1: mean, I, I'm not sure about public opinion. I think people are more savvy than they were a few years ago about surveillance capitalism and what's going on when they use Google or Facebook or many of these other companies. So I think, yeah, they know that they're, they're choosing Google, but people are largely powerless here. It's not that they're saying we like Google surveillance. It's that having a Gmail, Google Docs, Google Hangouts, that all of these things are are part of their life and they can't get rid of them. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and the surveillance is something they're stuck with and have reluctantly accepted, not that they're happy with it. So I think people do sort of understand the trade off they're making, but know that they can't make a good trade off because those options aren't available to them.
0: Most of the non technical users out there, Bruce, are probably familiar that there is this big push by Google and other um, internet service providers to leave HTTP protocol behind and adopt HTTPS does that really make a difference in the quote-unquote security of the internet or is that more of kind of a feel-good measure are we getting added privacy out of that
1: Uh, everything makes a difference nothing is perfect so HTTPS protects your data as it transmits around the internet it is important and, and the more we use it the more secure we are and the push by Google also by EFF to get more sites to uh, to encrypt their web traffic. This does increase our security. I mean, it's it's not the be all and end all. It's not the thing that makes us secure, but it protects us against a wide variety of threats. We know that lots of of countries eavesdrop on large swaths of the internet as data transmits uh, through their borders or sometimes through other people's borders. We know that criminals do some of those same things when they can. And going to secure HTTP is one of the ways to protect ourselves. So yes, it is very important. And it's a big deal that Microsoft was uh, deprioritizing sites that didn't use HTTPS. It was a big deal when Let's Encrypt uh, showed up and became an easy and cheap way for companies to implement HTTPS for their customers and users and people who visit their sites.
0: Which makes me wonder if you have HTTPS and you buy into this advertising now for VPN services, should I sit back and relax and say, all right, I'm running HTTPS over a VPN. I'm doing about as much as I can in protecting this device over the airways.
1: You know, it's, it's, it's a very complicated question. I mean, I don't know what sit back and relax means, right? I, I bought a great doorbell. I mean, I got I my mean, door lock. Should I sit back, relax and say, you know, my, my life is perfectly safe. I mean, maybe what 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 are you worried about if you worried about uh, toxins in your food it has nothing to do with that so so you know be careful about these sort of broad sweeping i did a thing therefore i don't have to worry about anything if you use https you don't have to worry about attacks that https prevents you do have to worry about other things but you might not because maybe you don't worry about those things it you know, really step back and think about What are the threats you're worried about? You know, know, before I can answer that question, are you a dissident in China worrying about getting arrested or tortured? Are you a consumer in the United States worried about somebody knowing your your preferences? Are you a criminal? Are you a government? Who are you and what are your issues? And then we can talk about whether certain things are enough.
0: So let's kind of move this conversation into the future when it comes to wireless and as you and i both know 5g seems to be the be all end all catchphrase that everybody's using the drone manufacturers are offering us beyond visual line of sight with drones the driverless car manufacturers are offering us a world where cars speak to one another and they speak to cities and i'm wondering bruce do you think we've learned any lessons about the security of 5g um, from what we've seen with Wi-Fi, what we've seen with WPA3 and some of the vulnerabilities that have been found in it, and even just basic cellular technology. Are we learning what we need to when we have these powerful networks that are going to be out you know, in the wild any day now?
1: I'm going to be annoying and pick apart your question again. It depends on who you mean by we, right? If we is me and my colleagues, yes. If we is the government, no. If depending on who else we're talking about, it, it's going to be... Any number of different answers. Uh, as a society, we, I'll use that word, are terrible at proactive security in all aspects, in anything. We don't worry about it until something happens. Right? We don't do counterfactuals. And, and, and this, is a, this is a problem, I think, as a species, that, that we're just not good at this sort of thing. So we tend to make the same mistakes over and over again in all aspects of our life, and, and, and technology is, is just one of them. Uh, certainly, the lessons learned by the computer industry aren't translating to other industries as well as we might think they do. So you're seeing the same mistakes being made by the manufacturers of uh, cars and appliances and thermostats and Roombas, that were made by Microsoft and others 20 years ago. Uh, 5G, I mean, I, I think that's a really important technology to look at. It's not less secure than anything else. I mean, all of the cellular technologies have been terribly insecure. So, I mean, uh, lessons learned are more complicated because they've never been learned. But, okay. you know, we're moving to a world where you talk about 5G and things, where this stuff is more important. And I think that's why I'm worried today, and not because the computers are different, because what the computers are attached to are different.
0: Well, let's then talk about the Internet of Everything or Internet Plus, which is the focus of your new book, Click Here to Kill Everybody. Um, So we do have these billions of new devices that will be coming online. As you point out, many are going to be made by the lowest bidder. These devices have to authenticate and communicate with one another. When we talk about this big, huge Internet Plus, do we know what the, the highest priority vulnerabilities are that we need to start tackling?
1: You know, I, I often dislike ranking vulnerabilities in priority because I think their vulnerabilities are more broad than that. And if we tackle the highest priority, we're going to miss the ones underneath it, which are probably worse. So I think there isn't an understanding of how things fit together. And what we're doing, what we're building, is a world where everything is connected. So 2016 vulnerabilities in Internet-connected digital video recorders and webcams were used to build a giant botnet That dropped a domain name service that dropped a couple of dozen very important popular websites. And so there's an attack vector, which doesn't get anybody's list, but that happens to be how a good part of the Internet was taken offline for a while. Uh, 2014, the first major cyber attack against the United States, the victim was, was Sony. Again, no company that would be anybody on anybody's top 100 or probably top 1,000 list of nation-state targets within the United States. So it's the broad risks I worry about more than let's pick the five things that will make a really good uh, scary news story and talk about them.
0: One of the things I think we all expect is that the manufacturers of these devices update their firmware as soon as they know that there's some sort of vulnerability out there that could be exploited – and I know that one of your concerns is the patching of routers, the patching of the infrastructure out there. Do you think there's a solution for scaling up this patching process as we get hundreds and millions of more devices out there in the Internet Plus? You know,
1: we know how to scale patching. We can patch every Microsoft operating system, every iPhone. We can patch lots of things. What we can't patch is lots of different things and lots of things that aren't supported anymore. And so the reason patching works – actually, let's step back. The reason patching exists is because we don't know how to write secure software. We haven't the faintest clue. So we do the best we can, and we are agile. When vulnerabilities appear, we quickly write patches and promulgate them down to individual devices. That's what Microsoft, Apple, Google, all the big companies do. And that works. It works pretty well. That's how we get security, even though we don't know how to design security out of the box. Right? Different than how we do airplanes. Right? Airplanes are get it right the first time, but software is you know, get it pretty good and fix it quickly when you find problems. So that ecosystem, which works well for computers and phones, doesn't work for low-cost embedded systems. They're often designed, which you said, by the low bidder, offshore, by third parties, engineering teams come together, uh, write the software, then disperse. They don't have security teams on staff to write those patches. So those low-cost devices you have, there's no one there to write the patch. Sometimes, in many cases, there's no mechanism to install the patch. Most home routers can't be patched. The way you patch them is you throw them away and buy a new one, and these devices will be around a long time, longer than the companies. And so it's some third party in, in Taiwan designs an interconnected toy and it's sold for Christmas. And that company is out of business in two years. So now there's not even anybody you can hold liable to write the patch. And now these devices are on the Internet for 5, 10, 20 years, unpatched, unpatchable with vulnerabilities. So, so that's the problem. Now, You ask what the solution is. We don't know. We've never had this problem before. And it's going to look something like how do we build a secure network, even though these insecure components are wandering around your home, your office, your community. But we don't have an answer for
0: that yet. One of the things that I read in your book was you've argue that there's a role for the government, that the government, I think you said, is the missing piece in the security of Internet Plus. When when you say there's a role, what should we think about in terms of role? So a lot of the insecurity we have is due to the market failure,
1: the fact that the market doesn't provide security. This shouldn't be surprising. Markets tend not to provide security and safety. Markets are designed to benefit uh, short-term. They are profit-motivated. They tend not to solve society-wide problems, and you know you look at lots of other industries where this was true uh, in uh, pharmaceuticals, food production, k- airplanes, cars. You, you go sort of again and again: uh, consumer goods, workplace safety. The market doesn't provide safety and security. That government has to step in with some sort of regulatory regime, and what that does is that incense industry to you do what it does best, which is innovate within the constraints of what the regulation, what society deems are the ground rules. So this is how we do it in, in all industries. So we need to do it here. And, and and how is is a complicated question. I spend like over half the book talking about different ways this could work. We don't have an answer, we just need to start. But the notion of tech is unregulated, tech can do what it wants, any regulation is a problem, I think that has to go that we really have to start thinking better than that and I think we will as The internet starts affecting the world in direct physical manner. One of the points I make in the book is that what's changing is that the internet is now Touching the world. It's a car. It's a thermostat. It's a medical device and Instead of your spreadsheet crashes and you lose your data It's your embedded heart monitor crashing and you lose your life and that difference will spur government action.
0: Let me ask you this, though. I think a lot of where the government sets the bar winds up being the important factor in those regulations. And aren't you worried that regardless of where the bar is set, if it's super high, if it's super low, that manufacturers are going to come back and say, we're going to give you the bare minimum. We don't have any incentive to give you more than the bare minimum because... The regulatory stick only comes out if we don't meet what you put in your regulation. And therefore, that kind of disincentivizes, you know, going over and above. Or are you arguing that it's better to have a bar than to have no bar at all? Well, if you have no bar at
1: all, you get no safety or security. I mean, let's sort of take another example. There is a a regulation that specifies how many insect parts can be in your breakfast cereal. (laughs) There is a number, right? And you're right. The breakfast cereal industry will not do any better than that minimum. And it's not zero, by the way. If there was no regulation, there'd be way more insect parts in your breakfast cereal. So you're right. None is better than a little bit, but a little bit's better than a lot. I mean, regulation is complicated. You know, we in tech tend to have a very simplistic view of regulation. You must do this. You can't do that. But when you look at how industries are regulated, uh, it's not that simple. Regulations uh, can be flexible, they can be situational, they can be uh, implemented by courts, they can be by agencies, they can be domestic, international, they change over time, uh, sometimes it's, it's industry-led, sometimes it's government-led, and we need to look at the, the very complicated methods by which we regulate all the industries that affect our lives. You know, both of us are, are indoors right now, and neither of us are worried that the ceiling will collapse on our heads. Right? That is a direct result of a regulation. Now, you go back to the Babylonian times, the regulation was basically if the ceiling collapses on someone's head, the architect that designed the building will be killed. And that was a very pretty, you know, that was an interesting <laughs> regulation because it, it didn't specify any how. All it said was look, architect, you're responsible for the building not collapsing. You're responsible with your life. Now, that regulation will spur lots of development in building safety because now you have an architect that will do a lot of work to engineer the building properly. Now, I'm not saying we should behead the, the heads of social media companies, although some are calling for that, but that sort of incentive structure does make it so companies might go, Beyond the minimum. Because there is no minimum. We're not specifying you have to be level six on a scale of one to ten. We're just specifying that No, it's gonna go the other way. Not saying you have to do these certain things. We're just specifying an outcome. And that's just one example of how to think about this. There's lots of different ways to think about government regulation. But we in tech have kind of a, a cartoonish way of thinking about it usually. I think that hurts us.
0: Let's transition and maybe take a look at driverless cars and drones, as they're gonna fit into this internet plus. When we talk about these technologies that, you know, quite frankly, have the ability to hurt people if they're misused, or maybe just if they're failures in the systems, does that imply we need to have a special category of regulation or a special category of standards that treat vehicles like that differently than your toaster that's gonna be connected to the internet different than your refrigerator? Um, How do we how do we separate, you know, the more serious technologies from the less serious technologies if we need to? So this is not
1: this is not as obvious as as we might think, because certainly there's a difference between a car and a toy and a toaster or a small appliance, and a large appliance and a medical device and an airplane or drone. But they probably are using the same computer chips they're probably using the same operating systems. So there's a lot of commonality in how they are designed, how they are built, but an enormous difference in the physical objects they're embedded in. So it makes no sense for the same rules to control uh, a Boeing aircraft as control a you know, talking child's toy. Right? That makes no sense. But there's going to be some commonality because they might all use the same chips. And I think we have to navigate that. I don't think we know how. But starting to think about the commonalities and differences is, is going to be critical moving forward. Because you're right, it doesn't make sense to have the same regulation. But in some cases it does. But in many cases it doesn't. So how do we deal with that?
0: One of the things that the tech industry, as you know, is notorious for is blankets of secrecy you know, whether it's intended or not intended over every kind of technology that they have. Yet you argue quite a bit for transparency. Where do you think transparency fits in some of these technologies that are moving so fast? You you know, it's tough to keep up with them. Is there a public policy imperative to say we need to know how that perception system operates? or we need to know how those algorithms operate before they're going to go on our roads or fly over our houses. Is there a way to, to you know grab these companies by the collar and say, be transparent or else? Or is that a threat that not, doesn't need to be made? So
1: transparency is, is an important tool we have for, uh, for regulation. There are trade secrets and, and reasons companies need to keep things proprietary, but at the same time, we often need transparency to understand what they're doing. And other industries have navigated this. Other industries have navigated the both needs. And there are, there are ways that you can uh, submit documentation to a government, to an agency, and it doesn't get released to the public. There are a lot of halfway ways This need for both transparency and for trade secrecy. I think as these algorithms become more important and more opaque – they do become more dangerous, and we're going to be requiring transparency more and more in some of these areas. It is not uh, a, the solution, but I think it enables other solutions. But this is another complicated area because we want companies to be able to build things in a proprietary manner and do things in secret, because you know that's how they that's how they gain an advantage. But at the same time, we don't want things that can harm us as a society to be implemented without being examined first. Now, you mentioned like cars on our roads. You know, Are we going to want cars on our roads with software algorithms we don't understand? Are we going to want algorithms making loan decisions or making parole or bail decisions to be opaque? Don't know, and there's a lot of discussion and research in this area of algorithmic transparency, and I think it's important to keep working on this.
0: Well, for the it's most, it's tough.
1: There's not, yeah. there's not a lot of answers in this interview, right? I mean, we have a whole lot of that's a hard question. That's a hard question, and in some ways, that's my point. I mean, we have to start thinking about these. I mean, and, the answers aren't obvious, but if we don't think about them, we'll never solve them.
0: Which, which gets back to one of the things that you wrote about in your book, and that's. If we take a look at these algorithms, chances are, and this is me parroting what you said, you're not going to be able to figure out how an algorithm goes from point A to point B and gives you the answer. But yet, you can look at the data on which these algorithms are being trained on and at least get some sort of assurance that there's not any kind of bias in it or that the bias has been identified beforehand. Do you think we need to get down to the point of looking at the training data sets that we use for the perception systems for all these systems that go into these vehicles that rely on AI and say, you need to to ethically scrub the data that's going in? Otherwise, we're not trusting the output. Otherwise, we're not allowing that vehicle to move.
1: So that's going to be one way to do it. it. There's different ways, different thoughts about this. So if you think about a human being, a human being is an example of an intelligence system where we have no visibility into how it works. I mean, the, we talk about algorithms being able to find an explanation. Human beings are terrible at explanations. All the research shows that we make decisions and kind of justify them later, that when asked to explain why we decided something, we don't actually explain, but we... Give a bunch of reasons that justify something that was an unexplainable in our head. Now, that largely works. I mean, we can judge the Los Angeles Police Department and whether they're racist or not, not by opening up policemen's brains and examining their process, but by looking at the results. Now, we don't care what the process is. The results have to be fair. And there's a school of thought and algorithms that says, just do that. Don't worry about the inputs or even the insides. Just worry about the outputs. And if the outputs are not what you want, the algorithm is biased and, you know, it suffers penalties just like the LAPD would. And if the, the, the output is good, then we don't care how it got there. And that's one way of thinking. Another way is, look, we can do better with algorithms than with people. Right? People are opaque and people are confusing, but algorithms, they can provide an explanation. They can explain their inner workings. They can show you what their input data is. So let's do better than people by looking at all of that. That's the side I tend to fall on, although the other side does have does make good arguments.
0: Transitioning this discussion to, you know, actually operating the autonomous vehicle on the road. And click here to kill everybody Bruce. You have this fascinating discussion of what happened to a Jeep that was taken over over the air. And I believe that was in 2017. Since 2017, 2011, 2011, I was off by six years. Yeah, that was
1: that's it's on the net. And it's it's a wide reporter. It's a YouTube video. And you can I think it's a Chrysler car and you can watch a couple of, of hackers take over the car remotely. And I think they disabled the brakes or maybe the steering or maybe both.
0: Isn't that something we need to be and, worrying about right now, even more? <laughs> I'm worried about it right now. I don't know about you.
1: Uh, yes, and, and it's interesting because there's nothing to do with the autonomy of the vehicle. You know, I'm worried about autonomous vehicles, but I'm actually just as worried about non-autonomous commuter-connected vehicles, that the, the danger is not the autonomy. It's the computer connection part, and you know, since 2011 – Audio manufacturers are taking it more seriously. I'm not sure how much better they're doing. I don't follow that industry closely. But yes, I mean, here's an example of a typical computer threat that becomes deadly just because the computer is attached to four wheels and an engine.
0: Do you think that in terms of vehicle-to-vehicle communications and now the vehicle-to-everything communications, we're moving too fast on that? Are we, should we be putting the brakes metaphorically on those technologies until we understand more about their vulnerabilities, or is the horse out of the barn and, and there's nothing we can do about that?
1: I think neither. I think you know, as I said, we are terrible proactive. That if we you know put the brakes on the technology before we understood it, we never understand it because no one would bother. You know, I mean, the understanding and doing always come hand in hand. So no, it's not too late. But also, I don't think slowing down actually makes a difference. I mean, here is where government steps in and says, hey, you know, you need to demonstrate these outcomes before these cars are on the road. You know, we do that with airplanes. I mean, the this, the 737 MAX uh, disaster shows how badly we do it and right, the problems of, of co-option and, and corruption inside regulatory bodies. But that is the basic mechanism. And applying that in other dangerous technologies. And, and you know, we sort of are trying. Cars, medical devices, existing regulatory agencies are trying to build standards and processes in security and safety before it's too late. But, you know, as that, Jeep, that uh, Chrysler story points out, in some ways it's already too late.
0: Which makes me wonder, both you and I know at some point, Bruce, there's going to be someone who says, hey, I want to have the ability to hack into this car. Um, Maybe I'm the farmer that doesn't want to take my tractor to John Deere and, and have service. Maybe I want to do it myself. Maybe it's the Jeep owner who says, I could come up with a better algorithm for fuel efficiency. Do you think that we need to allow individual operators to change these systems? Or are we getting to the point where we really don't want people futzing with their cars, so to speak?
1: Yeah, so this is right to repair. This is a bigger issue. And I think it's important for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, you know, some of it is, is a pushback against this massive corporate power where the corporations decide how you use your device and you know, under what rules. You know, it's, not, it, it's not stopping hacking already. Uh, tractor owners are hacking their uh, John Deere tractors even though it's against John Deere's rules and against the license agreement. I mean, you you buy hacked firmware from the Ukraine and you uh, install it in your tractor so you can repair it. So the mechanism that making it illegal doesn't solve the security problem. We have to solve the security problem assuming people control their own devices, because that really is the best societal outcome. So I'm not a fan of uh, removing the right to repair, the right to hack your own devices. Because that feeds into the, the, the corporate power problem that is giving us a lot of these insecurities in the first
0: place. With our time getting uh, very close to the end, I just want to focus on two more questions. One of those has to deal with the people that are engineering perception systems and you know all those things that we call machine vision for the autonomous cars and the autonomous drones. And I had one of the senior researchers at one of the major universities in the United States tell me, we have a difficult enough time trying to figure out how we can get these perception systems operating in a normal environment, that it becomes even more difficult when we think about GANs being used against this, when we think about the deep fakes being used against this, do you think that there's a way really at the university level to start getting people to think about, hey, your system is going to be compromised. Hey, you need to design around that compromise. Is that is that a possibility? Should we see that in our curriculums? I think we have to. I mean the real world has
1: adversaries in it. I mean you driverless cars are easy on a test track, but who cares? All that matters is the exceptions, is the snowy conditions, are the conditions where the teenage kids are putting stickers on the stop signs so that the cars don't see it, where children are running out on the streets, where you know where everything is going wrong. If the cars don't work in that environment, they, they don't work. I couldn't care less about a pristine test track. So yes, we have to start thinking about that at all levels. Because as you put these systems in the real world, they are going to be misused. If you are Facebook, you have to assume that Russian trolls are going to try to subvert your system to undermine democracy. If you don't think about that, right, you have no business putting your system out in the real world because that's what the real world is. So, yes, you know, we need to think about this at all levels of design. This is the world we live in. You know, it's not the pristine academic world. It's the
0: messy real world. And certainly not to pick on the academic community at all, but I was just kind of struck by the fact that that was one of the approaches that this community, at least, was confronting and dealing with. And one of the last things I want to, or the last thing I want to talk to you about, Bruce, is this connected future, whether it's a Uber VTOL vehicle, whether it's a autonomous drone doing a bridge inspection, whether it's going to be a driverless car that picks you up at the airport. People are thinking there needs to be some sort of supervision over all of these systems, even if it's just for deconflicting the traffic. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on whether you can federate some of this control architecture out out to companies, say Amazon and their fleet of drones, or let's say Uber and their VTOL uh, vehicles. Is it possible to allow private industry to control parts of the control infrastructure and then just have a government regulator serve as a supervisor that intervenes when there are conflicts between independent parts of this architecture? Or do we need to be thinking about, you know, this overriding architecture where everything is connected to the same air traffic control or the same vehicle traffic management system?
1: You know, it's going to be a hybrid. The international nature of this. Means that there isn't going to be one government that is in charge. So again, think about telephony or air traffic control. I mean, these are necessarily federated, and I think the complexity and the uh, the scale and scope is going to mean that you have to push regulation, uh, conflict resolution down as far as you can. And you won't be able to do it centralized. So the question is going to be, how do you centralize? What do you centralize? What do you decentralize? And the meta question is, how do you do efficient government regulation in a technological world, which we're still figuring out? the, The methods of regulation we have in governments today were designed for the industrial world. They're not agile enough. They're not fast enough. They're not flexible enough. And it is an open question that we need to figure out, is what does governance look like in the information age? And that's a very important question that we're just starting to figure out.
0: Bruce, I just want to thank you so much for your time with us today. Again, your book is Click Here to Kill Everybody.
1: You also, which has got to be the best book title ever, right? I
0: think that it's it scared the bejesus out of me, not only reading the title— but actually reading the book, and now I don't want to turn it. on. And I hope on. the
1: book isn't that scary. I try to be—I'm you know, not a fear monger, and I don't feel scared. I mean, we have serious issues. I think we will solve them. I don't think this is the end of the species, but we need to get cracking.
0: And, and, and I think just confronting those questions— it opens your eyes up, and and I think that this book, "Click Here to Kill Everybody," does a fantastic public service on that. Um, and just to well, thank re- you. Just to remind our listeners uh, that you can subscribe to Schneier on Security and go to schneier.com dot com if you want to hear and read more about um, what we were just talking about. Bruce, you're fantastic. You're always welcome back, and uh, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thank you. Thinking Through Autonomy is produced by Piper Creative. We specialize in producing podcasts for Fortune 500s, medium-sized businesses, and solopreneurs. If you'd like to learn more, say hello at pipercreative.co.